We're in verses 6 through 10. And I will say that this is not the easiest passage to teach through. Uh, it's not the, the easiest passage to study um, because it's not something we like to talk about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing there's been a faction historically and maybe even today that, of the church that, that may take a little joy or pleasure in what we're going to talk about today, but uh, it's not, I don't think, the Lord's view of it. I don't think it should be our view of it. But we are going to talk about God's righteous judgment of sinners. And uh, I, I put righteous in there intentionally because it's, it's uh, important that we understand why it is that God judges and why it is that it is righteous and just that He judges as He does. So as we talk, you know, I want us to think through, and we, we've kind of done this with First Thessalonians. It gave us a, a lot of things to think about, hope for, right? Where there's a lot of promises of God that as we look through even First Thessalonians, but throughout Scripture, that is a great comfort to the believer, right? And one of the, the reasons that we can be comforted by the promises of God is because God is immutable. This, what is immutability, or what does God immutable mean? Yeah, He doesn't change. He's the same, right? That we know if He says something, He's going to do it. And so there's a, a huge blessing in that for us as believers that, that we don't ever have to wonder, okay, is God going to change His mind regarding His promises to us? Is somehow He going to look back and say, you know what, I said Jesus was going to pay for all the penalty of your sin, but I've changed my mind. Now you're on your own. We never have to worry about that. And we can praise the Lord for that. And so it's a wonderful blessing to consider the immutability of God, the fact that He does not change, that it really is on the basis of His unchangeableness that we can count on His faithfulness for assurance of our justification. We can, we can count on Him for the power for our sanctification because He's promised to help us grow and learn and develop and become more like Christ and then ultimately, the, the promise of future glorification. Again, those are all three things we talked about in 1 Thessalonians. Those promises are grounded in God's immutability. And we can praise God for it, and I hope you do. As you think about your own lives, you say, okay, it's only God's goodness that I'm a believer. It's only God's goodness that I repented. It's only God's goodness that I grow. And ultimately, it's God's goodness that will bring me face to face with Him in heaven. But if you, you know, I don't know if I've got y'all, but I grew up listening to the radio. My dad listened to locally here, WBAP, talk radio. And there was always in the morning and then the evening, there was a Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Right? Do y'all remember the rest of the story? You know, Paul, I, I read about him. He's a fascinating guy. He ended up doing that, that bit for 50 years. You know, and started out just on a local radio station and kind of got picked up and picked up and broader and broader. And it, it ultimately became someone that, you know, pretty much if you listen to American radio at all, at any point, you're probably going to come across him. Um, but he always told these stories, and then he would say, and now the rest of the story, and he would kind of give you a little twist that maybe you weren't expecting, you know, or give you more insight into some historical person or event. You know, really, today, we're going to look at the rest of the story when it comes to God's immutability. The reality is, is not only does God promise to bless those that are His, He is promised to judge those who reject Him. And so we have to look at both sides of the story. We don't have to be excited about it in the sense of we, we are you know, clapping and high-fiving that this is going to happen, but we need to understand that this is just a much a part of God and His attributes as His grace and His mercy. And so as we study this, I hope it will be helpful for you uh, that'll help you understand this topic a little bit better and perhaps 
motivate you even more to share the truth, to plead with people that they might come to know the Lord, knowing what's in store for them, that they might repent. One commentator said, in a moral universe, sin cannot go unpunished. The sinner always hopes that he will escape penalty, but because God is over all, that is quite impossible. Punishment is the other half of sin. The reality is they go together. And so as we look through God's righteous, righteousness and the judgment of sinners, I want first for us to understand the justice of that judgment. So we're going to read the passage together so you kind of get the full context, and then we'll break it down uh, because it's a, it's, in one way it's a very simple passage. It's very clear what it teaches, but we need to try to understand it better. But let's read together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 6 through 10. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed." And so as we look at that, again, there's some pretty sobering words, but we need to understand, first of all, the justice of God's judgment. The justice of God's judgment. And really, he starts out with this phrase, verse 6, for after all. And really, that, is a, uh, that means if this is true, and it is, then. And we're going to get into the then as we go further into chapter six, or verse 6. But he is saying that if it's true that God is just in this, and he is, then this is what we have to understand. Uh, one commentator said it's similar to saying that if the sun comes up tomorrow, and it will, right? we know, we can count on that the days will continue, the, 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 the sun and the moon will continue in their place until the Lord comes. If that's true, then this is also true. It says it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so that, as I studied, I mean, one of the first questions that popped into my mind is, why is that only just? Why is it just that God would, would repay with affliction those who afflict you? And so we need to look at that and consider God's justice God's justice in judgment. You know, Colossians 3.25 says, He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Colossians 3.25 And the reality is, is throughout God's dealing with His people, He has shown that He will bring judgment to those who are against Him and against His people. Uh, and it's fascinating to me as I studied, you know, you start pulling up these verses and you start checking and you, you find these passages where you might read and go, oh yeah, that's, that's one of the great promises of God and, and that's such a comfort to know that that's true. And I didn't realize right after that it's God's judgment. You know, but there's so many times throughout the Scripture that God's promises of, of redemption, His promises of faithfulness, His promises of salvation are immediately followed by His promise of judgment for those that reject Him. And so that, that is part of it, is that God is saying, here's how I work. We consider in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you can go ahead and turn there because we're going to be there for just a minute. But consider Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is God promising His people what He will do as their God. 
He says in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of the mighty hand, or brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So this is God specifically talking of the nation of Israel, and, and note, just like with us, it wasn't anything special in the nation of Israel. It wasn't anything special about the people. God chose those people because He chose them. He chose to set His love on the nation of Israel because that was His choice. He chose us not because you and I were just so good, but because He just chose us. Verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation to those who love Him and keep His commandments. And boy, that, you know, that verse alone, verse 9, that could be a promise that we can thank the Lord for and praise God that God is a faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to the thousandth generation. Okay? The, the Alexanders are, are excited because they're coming up on you know, generation number five. You know, for, for your mom, she's going to get to see the fifth down you know, if she lives, Lord willing, through, through to September. You know, that's exciting. But this, this is God saying, I'm faithful to the thousandth generation. Imagine that. For those that love God, and keep His commandments. And, and again, we should rightly praise the Lord for His goodness to His people. We should rejoice in the Lord for all of His goodness to His people. But then verses 10 and 11 says, but repays, that is, that is God, this same faithful God, repays those who hate Him to their faces. To destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. You know, there's, there is in verse 10 specifically God's personal judgment to their face. Those that have rejected him, those that have hated him, he will judge, excuse me, he will judge to their face. Now again, that's sobering as we consider, but that's not the only time that's said. Uh, again, as you think about the promises that God gives, there's many, many times that they're handed not only the promise of hope of salvation, but the promise of the hope of destruction or the anticipation of destruction. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, He says, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And it's like, yes, thank you, Lord. That I can be a blessing to those who are, you know, and to the one who curses, I will curse. Right there in that promise to Abram is the reality of judgment for those that do not follow God. In, in Jacob's blessing, again, we went through Genesis. Most of us went through Genesis together, right? Uh, and you all know some of these stories, but as, as Isaac is blessing Jacob in, Je in Genesis chapter 27, it says, and then his father Isaac said to him, please come and kiss me, my son. And he came and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of the garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now the Lord may, give you, or may the Lord give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you. And blessed be those 
who bless you. So God promises that Abram, He promises with Jacob, He promises to the nation of Israel multiple times. And again, I could I, I give you so many examples. But this is how God works. And the reality is, is this is the God that is faithful to do all that He has said. So what He has said for literally hundreds of years is that if you will love Me and obey Me and do what I have asked you to do, then you will be blessed. If you don't, if you reject Me, if you refuse to obey My commands, then you will be cursed. And again, there's kind of that, oh yeah, that's what the Old Testament God was like. You know, Pastor Tom's been talking about some false views of God and, uh, in, in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, one of those is that, yeah, there's like the Old Testament mean God. And then there's the New Testament nice God. And he's sweet and he loves everybody. And he'd never hurt a fly. You know, I mean, he's just love and love and love. And everybody wants to focus on that. Um, you know, it's interesting if you go back into Matthew. Jesus' longest recorded sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes through and he gives many you know, teachings that, that would go counter to everything that the Jews would have held dear because it looked at the law and God's expectations from God's perspective and not so much from man's perspective. But here's what he says at the end in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount... He says in verse 24, chapter 7 of Matthew, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So here's even Jesus saying the same thing. Because you know what? Both groups heard Jesus' message. Both groups built a house. They did something. Both groups faced the same trials. Same general categories, right? The rain, the floods, the wind. But there was two vastly different results. One stood firm. It did not fall. One fell. It was destroyed. And what's the one difference between those two people? The foundation. But he says it's, it's like this. These people are like this. And what is it? Those who hears these words of mine and does them. That's the difference. It's if you're hearing the Word of God and obeying it, that's what builds the foundation on the right thing. The others heard the Word of God and did not obey. And the reality is, is our world is filled with people that know the truth and have rejected God. Romans talks about that over and over again. I, I went back and went through some of the lessons that Tom had taught through uh, the beginning of Romans, and that's what it is, is they know, right? Even the unreligious person, the person that's never been taught about Jesus specifically, still knows there's a God. And they still reject Him. They still seek after idols they seek after other things. But it is God that will justly, rightly repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. Now when we talk about repaying affliction, that really refers back to the chapter that we just finished, or the section we just finished with, with Milt last week. 
right? That these Thessalonian believers, Paul's praise for them was that in the midst of ever-increasing persecution, they were standing firm. Right? That, that they were being persecuted and afflicted in verse 4. And they were persevering under that trial. And so now he's, Paul is saying that the reality is, is that this affliction, these afflictors will in fact be afflicted by God. That God will repay them with affliction. Uh, commentator Henry Morris said, or I'm sorry, Leon Morris said uh, that these people, those that had been afflicting the Thessalonians and those like them, will be punished, it really is more exactly will pay penalty. The last word, decay, in, in the Greek being the same, or being a form of the same word as righteous, dikelos. It is not a mindless infliction of vindictive punishment, but a meeting out of merited desert. The reality is, is God's judgment is righteous. That's why it's the righteous judgment for sinners. God's not just mad and angry. He's not that, you know, kind of the, the Old Testament God that everybody thinks is just storming and fuming. He's certainly not the Greek and the Roman gods that, you know, have you know, all these crazy you know, interactions with humanity and destroy them on a whim. No, this is God giving out to them exactly what they deserve. In this case specifically, it's these people that, will be that have been persecuting the Thessalonians will be themselves judged for that. In a broader sense, we know that the wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. That, every, uh, that we earn every time we sin the punishment for that sin in death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is just in the midst of that that we should be running to, clinging to Christ. We should be pointing people to that salvation and the reality is as, as we go into this is that we need to understand some people have tried to soften this and they've tried to say okay well for the for the believer yes there's life and life everlasting life eternal with god and and boy we'll be with him in heaven forever and we'll rejoice and worship and serve and all these wonderful things but for those sinners, he doesn't really mean that like forever. Like he just means like they'll just, you know, kind of go away. It's called annihilationism. Again, I think Tom mentioned that as one of the false things that people teach. The reality is, is that is not what God says. That the same hope of us for eternal life is the same dreaded fear of eternal judgment. You know, Tom says that, that part of it is it's not just that all the sin we committed in, let's say, 80 years, 90 years, 102 years of, of life. That, it's not that, that that is what will get us eternal punishment. It's the reality that those people will continue to rebel against God. The, these people don't, don't get to, to, to in front of God and say, oh, I, for, I repent. I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't done it. Please help me. No. They're going to, like Pharaoh, keep hardening their heart and hardening their heart and they will continue to reject God for all eternity. So this judgment, this repayment will continue for all eternity. God has the, the right to judge and to repay with affliction those who afflicted the Thessalonians, those who afflict the church. And it is also right for God in verse 7 to give relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, it says. Again, we, we see Paul, Paul can't avoid the fact that there is a dichotomy. There is a difference 
There's going to be those that receive affliction and it's right, just affliction. But there is also those that will receive reprieve. Uh, we'll receive one of the commentators uh, talked about that it's, it's a, 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 an easing up, right? That instead of the constant pushing they faced in life, suddenly there's that relief of God there taking that burden off of them, taking that affliction away. That there's a, you know, there's a lot of uh, technical terms <laughs> that we're not going to get into because uh, the, the reality is there's, I'm not qualified to teach all this. But I read a lot of big, thick, you know, systematic theologies. There's a lot of great information out there. But the reality is, guys, I want you all to understand because the knee-jerk reaction for most people is to say, well, that's just not fair. That God is saying, no, it is fair. It's fair, it is just, it is right because of who God is. So we have the, the justice of His judgment in verse, uh, the second part of chapter 7. We have the instrument of judgment. How will that judgment come? And again, this is kind of uh, counter to what most people want to have Jesus be. You know, we, Tom mentioned it. I've read the article about the, the He Gets Us campaign. You know, they just want Jesus to be this nice person who understands our problems and, and cares about us and loves us no matter what we do. But this is what it says here in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. That Jesus Himself is the instrument of judge, judgment. That He comes to judge. Now we know that when He came the first time, He said, I have not come to judge. Right? I've come to seek and to save that which were lost. And that was His mission for the time that He was on earth. And then He died and He was resurrected and He was ascended up into heaven. But when He comes back, it will be with judgment. You know, that revealed, that, that, that word is, is the same root word as you get in the book of Revelation. It's the, the, the pulling apart of a curtain or the, the, the pulling aside of, of what was hidden. Jesus said that, that when I come, it will be the same as the, as the day the Son of Man is revealed. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. That's Jesus promising that's what he's coming back for. In 1 Peter, he, he's talking to another group of believers that are being persecuted or being suffering because they are followers of Christ. And he, he reminds them in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Peter, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of His glory you might rejoice with exaltation. The reality is when Jesus comes back, we've, we've talked again about that in 1 Thessalonians. When He comes back for the church, when the dead in Christ are, uh, you know, arise first and then we who are alive will meet Him in the air, that revelation is glorious. We will rejoice in it for those that are his believers or that are his followers. We can rejoice, as Peter says, with exaltation. But that revelation for unbelievers is terrifying. And really, much of the book of Revelation that Tom's been teaching through is explaining exactly what that looks like. Again, we don't have time to go through every single thing that, that's in comfort of that, but we need to know that, that Jesus Himself is the instrument of judgment. The, the words here, it's, it's fun. Sometimes, again, I don't know Greek. I, I don't know Hebrew. I, I, I just read resources that teach me a little bit. But it's fun sometimes because you get to see that things that were in one language, you don't, that you don't see it in the, the other language. But... But really what it's talking about here is, is these different aspects of God's second coming. And, and one of the commentators said, you know, really, there's three words 
for this. When we talk about the return of Jesus or the revelation of Jesus, the, 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 the coming of Jesus, and he says the, the first word is the apocalypse. Right? That which has been hidden is now revealed, and that's what's going to happen. Jesus is in heaven. We don't see Him now, but we will. He will be revealed. The other two words are parousia, His return, and that again is the word we use when we think about His second coming for the church. Right, That He's coming back to get His bride. And then there's the epiphany, which, which really d- d- discusses the, the actual manifestation of Jesus. The fact that Jesus will, will bodily be there. One of the commentators said that this suggests that the hiddenness of the Lord will be ended and that His presence will be in objective reality and that His people will really see Him in a way that transcends even faith. Right? That, that finally, faith will become sight. Jesus revealed from heaven. That's where He is now, right? That's the last place we saw Him was ascending into heaven. And the, and the angels even promised there He's going to come back from the same way. He's currently seated at the right hand of God. But at this point, whenever this day comes, He comes from heaven and it says it comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Literally, it's, it's not that the angels are mighty. It's that they are angels of his might. Angels of his power. That this is, the, even the angels that God will use in part of judgment are representations of God's power on earth. That God, as Hebrews said, the the consuming fire will judge the earth. Now, I love the, again, this picture as you think about angels, again, you can go a whole different direction with that. We're not going to go there. But one of the things that that we see is that throughout the the Old Testament, throughout the scripture, that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of angels in heaven with God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33 says in verse 2, he says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, and he shone forth from the Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. That's 10,000 angels. Daniel chapter 7, verse 10 says, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. This picture of, of heaven, you know, even the picture in Isaiah of, of, of these angels flying around, worshiping God, praising his holiness, but God is presented as always surrounded by myriads, which just means thousands, right? Beyond number, you can't count them. Well, now, instead of them being in heaven, They're coming with Jesus to earth. They're coming from heaven with Jesus to bring judgment. So we saw the justice of judgment, that God is just to judge those who have rejected Him. We see that Jesus is the instrument of judgment. The question is, who's the target of judgment? We've talked about that a little bit, so we don't have to to dig into this too much. But in verse 8, it says that Jesus comes dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now there's a lot of different discussion about what that means. Some people would say that those who don't know God is... Uh, unbelievers, just Gentiles in general, non-church, non-Israel people, and that those who did not obey the gospel of our Lord is, is specifically Israel, right? That there's Gentiles in Israel, and that's what it means. Um, I don't think that's really what it is, right? I think there is an aspect of those who do not know God, those who are not religious, those who have not been taught specifically about Jesus, are going to be judged, but the verbiage here, the wording here, really is connecting that. That's descriptive of those same group of people. This passage is specifically talking about the judgment in verse 8 of those afflictors, 
those that have afflicted God's people, they will be dealt retribution. They are the ones who do not know God. And it's because, as it says in Romans 1, they have chosen to deny Him. They have chosen to reject Him. They do not obey the Gospel of the Lord. You know, it's interesting that to obey the Gospel, we, we don't think about that maybe all the time. We, we think of presenting the Gospel. We think of, of sharing the Gospel. We, we, we think of, of, of teaching the Gospel. But realize that Jesus gave the Gospel as a command. You know, Mark 1.15, it says, Repent and believe the Gospel. That's an imperative. That is a call to every man every woman, every child, to turn away from their sin and believe the truths of the Gospel. And those that do not obey the Gospel will have retribution. Again, the, the, the Greek, I'm not going to be able to try to explain it all because I don't know it all, but I know that the, what every commentator said is there is a distinction in verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 is specific to those people that we would see uh, punishing or afflicting the Thessalonians. But the verse in verse 9 where it says these is a different word. In that, it's more all-encompassing. That these like this, those that, that are like these people that have been persecuting the Thessalonians, that like those people that have, that have rejected God, that have refused to obey the Gospel, these like this will pay the penalty. And so we need to understand that this isn't just, oh, this is judgment for just this group of people that, that afflicted the Thessalonians. But this is what stands as a future judgment for all who are like them. Right? These, in verse 9, show the extent of the judgment. These that reject God who deny God, who do not obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And again, guys, this is not fun to talk about. Um, but it's there. We can't ignore it. Again, as I studied through one of the, the passages that kind of just was, you know, one of those like, huh, I, I just never put these things together in the same context. If we think about probably the, at one point was the most famous verse, it was at least every time you turned on football or baseball, there was someone holding a sign up with a verse on it. It was John 3.16, right? And again, we want, we, that's a great verse. It's got wonderful presentation of the truth that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's wow. Again, we should read that verse. We should think about that verse. We should rejoice that that is true. But what's interesting is what follows. Because again, I, would like, I know I've read that chapter 50 times, 100 times over my life. And I never really put this together, but here's what Jesus continues to say in verse 17 and beyond. For God did not send the Son in, into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. But He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. There's a distinction, right? There are those that will, will flee the Son of God 
because they don't want their deeds exposed. They flee the light. And they will ultimately pay the penalty of eternal destruction. They flee the light. They flee the presence of God. And ultimately, they get exactly what they asked for. They wanted away from God His presence. And really what they didn't realize was that it's God's very presence that makes life possible. That makes all of the good things we have in this life possible. It's God's common grace that brings rain and sun and the seasons and all of the blessings we have with family and friends and enjoyment and employment and all of the goodness of God He said, I don't want any of that. And so they will get what they wanted. They will be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. And again, that that does not mean that that they will be, that there will be nothingness, right? It doesn't mean that that God just leaves them alone and now there's nothing, because no, there's ongoing anguish. There's ongoing punishment. It means that they have walked away from and been separated from all that is good in God. Even in the midst of their lives, when when things were bad, they were still, whether they knew it or not, supported by the, the love and the kindness and the grace of God. And now all that's gone. And all that's left for those that have rejected God is His wrath. You know, one of the commentators had, a, had a, I think, a fitting illustration. It's a little bit long, but I think it's good for us to consider this. Um, just because it, it, it is, it's tough. This is not an easy topic to think, think about. It should not be something where we're like pumping our fists that this is going to happen. It should prompt us to action. I mean, here's what he said. He said, some seaports, and this was written a while back because we don't really have too much. We have seaports, but I think they're all open year-round nowadays. Um, maybe not Alaska. <laughs> okay. Uh, but he says, some seaports operate year-round, like London or New York. Others are ice-bound during the winter. It is said that in a port like Montreal in Canada, the authorities urge a captain to let his ship out of port when the freeze-up is imminent. Right? There's something that's coming. They know the, the storm is coming and it's about to be locked down for the winter. The captain procrastinates. He wants to load even more cargo. In the end, he cannot leave. His ship is frozen in. He has gained what he asked for. He refused to take the opportunity of getting away when he could. But now is the day of salvation. Right? I want to just get a little more stuff. I want to make a little more money. I want to make this trip a little more better for me, profitable for me, what I need, what I want. And now it's too late. Eternal punishment thus marks this fact. God's patient is not forever. And man's quote-unquote ability slash opportunity to repent is not unlimited. His repeated choice of godlessness ends in a settled character of godlessness. He does not want God. All the pleas and persuasions, all the blessings and the blows of life, all the evidences and reminders of God's deep love in Christ have left him unmoved. What else can there be for him but that destruction which is an exclusion exclusion from the presence of the Lord is what he's been seeking all his days. Now he has it. He has cut himself off from the divine goodness and love and God judicially implements his decision. Because I, I thought that was, it was powerful for me because I think one of the challenges, even as we have kids, right? And most of you have kids, grandkids, great, you know, all the, you know, is, is sometimes it can feel like, okay, well, if 
I just did enough. If I just said the right thing, if I just, you know, if I just handled that situation better, maybe they would have come to know the Lord. You know, maybe coworkers or our family that we, we, we grieve that they have rejected the gospel and we feel like maybe it's our fault. Maybe we just didn't do the right thing. The reality is, the Scripture teaches that these people have all been given chances. Now, that doesn't mean we stop sharing. It means we should share more. We should desire. We should continue to plea. We should continue to share. We should continue to pray for them. But ultimately, they will have no one to blame but themselves. They have rejected the God that could save them. Sorry, I keep scratching here. Okay. So Paul explains this and explains how this judgment is to come. And then he kind of gives us a little glimmer. Verse 10 is like a little shiny light through the darkness to give us a little bit of hope for us to think about this. Again, that, that this coming, I, don't, I, I, I hope, I pray, that none of you are looking at this and saying, yes, they get what they deserve. Because the reality is, is that we are only not getting this judgment because God gave us something we didn't deserve. Verse 10, it says, And when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. And what He is saying is, you know what? We will will see this from a different lens, right? We're not going to see Jesus the judge coming to us. We will not stand before the Lord and and because of His goodness, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We won't hear, I don't know you. Now again, there's a lot that looks like religious activity and sounds like Christian speak that might not actually be that. And so there's a fair warning here throughout Scripture for us. But he says, for those that are believers, those that are His saints, that's God's work. He called us. He set us apart. He, we are His holy ones. And it says the, the, the flip side is we'll be marveled at. This, this thing we will, we will see, we will marvel, we will praise the Lord among those who have believed. That's us responding in faith to God. The reality is, is that, that it is always God's work through, <laughs> through the Gospel. We have nothing to boast in it ourselves, but by God's goodness, we believed. We did repent and believe the Gospel. And because of that, because of God's goodness, that's what Paul even says, that last phrase, for our testimony to you was believed. Those that were in Thessalonica, they heard the Gospel and they believed. We talked about in verse Thessalonians, right? They, They rejected the false gods, the false idols, and they believed the true and the living God. For us, this day ends very differently. We we need to continue to rejoice in that. We need to anticipate that. We need to prepare ourselves for that. Part of that preparation, I think, is a plea to those that are facing God's wrath. That we would come alongside them as we care about them, as we love them, that we would desire to see their salvation. Knowing that if they reject the Gospel, if they reject the truth of God, if they reject the teaching of Scripture, that's on them. We can do only what we can do, which is share the truth. And it's up to them to respond to God's mercy or His offer of mercy. Well, I told you it wasn't going to be a real... uh, happy, upbeat session. But are there any questions that y'all have as we we go through this? And again, I may not be able to handle all the questions, but are there things that that maybe um, we can talk about together before we dismiss? 
Oh, sorry. The, the, it would be helpful if I gave you that, huh? The proper response to judgment. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. Again, he, he is mighty, and we can praise him and desire to be more like him and desire to share the gospel. So, well, thank you guys. Again, I hope that was helpful and some things to consider. Uh, let us uh, close in prayer. Lord, we, we thank you uh, as we consider that you are God, that there is nothing that you depend on, that there's nothing that, that changes who you are. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust your faithfulness, your uh, fulfillment of the promises you've made. And Lord, we are so uh, amazed and humbled that you would choose us to be your children. And Lord, I pray that as we consider that, that that transforms how we approach every day. Lord, that not only would we desire to share the gospel with those that don't know you, but that we would desire to be holy ourselves, just as you are holy. Lord, that we would desire to live out the life that you desire for us, so that we might please you, who gave himself up for us, died in our place. And Lord, as we think about the judgment that we know is coming, because you have promised it, Lord, help us to be diligent, to share, to warn, to plea, to beg people to turn to You. But Lord, let us also take comfort to know that it is not because of a lack of something we did or the, the failure for us to say a certain thing that people are judged. But they're judged because they have rejected You. Because they have chosen a life apart from God. Lord, help us to, to be faithful to share, to trust You for the outcomes, and that we would look forward to, with great anticipation, the coming where we will glory. We will, we will glorify You. We will marvel at You. We will praise You and worship You and exalt You forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.